Right. Ronde do at uh, Fife Niner Alpha. Did you say Ronde do? Ronde do? Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. So, I don't know if you got a topic, do you, Rob? Um, a couple of things that we can talk about, but it's nothing as usual, pressing. Yeah. So, I just wanted to uh, start by... Hey, you didn't minute. ask me. That's because you're not the topic's life. Oh. I just assumed you didn't have a topic. Yeah, Although no, you did I don't. have one a couple of weeks ago. Well, this gets to my point, because... Uh, <laughs> Hey, Mike, why don't you just be quiet for a while, okay? So that'd be great. Well, here's the thing. I was reflecting on this. As I listened to uh, last week's recording to edit it, mm-hmm. I thought to myself, I feel like I went over the line with our friendship and how we're sarcastic and poke each other. Mm-hmm. Because as I was listening to how I rebuffed your topic, <laughs> not even just the first time, which I put in there, but there's some stuff I took out. Where I was like, wow, I was a jerk. uh so first of all i just wanted to apologize to you rob for that well thank you it uh yeah you hated that movie (laughs) i did and in fact go ahead ahead. well i was just gonna say i i uh just in prayer like the next couple days from that podcast i mean it was nothing like earth shattering but it was very much a like it it did seem to strike something in you of a dislike for the movie of like I was like, wow, he didn't hear. And that's fine. Like it ended up being pretty good. But mm-hmm. he didn't hear what I was saying at all. He right. just wanted to get his digs in on that movie. <laughs> I know. Well, that's <laughs> what I that's what I was hearing. And because the second time I listened, I did hear what you said. Um, sure. And I mean, the big thing was that you had an affective movement. In, the, in this scene, which my affective movement was the opposite. I was like, I, and I remembered because I, I talked to a friend, the friend who I went to go see that movie with, mm-hmm. that scene that you were talking about where he's returning to Earth and everybody's watching on big screens. I remember leaning over to my friend and saying, do you think you'd be standing in Times Square watching this on TV? And he's like, no, I'd probably just read about it in the newspaper the next day. And I was like, yeah, me too. <laughs> so I like there's something the scene just didn't uh, it wasn't believable to me mm-hmm. but at the same time there was a way I could have said that still respecting the fact that it did move you sure sure and it got me thinking just I don't want to rehash this whole topic but it had me thinking for a while just about the because I found that article that I sent you guys too on that person's kind of Catholic reflections on the Martian and whether whether or not I think the central question is whether or not it's worth it to go after one person when it costs all this money and then possibly six more lives and everything else. And it's a good question because that was the other thing that was on my mind. And that would have made for a good discussion, which was um, not only would I not like be standing in Times Square super excited about an astronaut coming home. But also, like even in the movie, I thought to myself, all these there's all these starving people, and just like so many people need to be saved, mm-hmm. and this guy just happens to be on Mars, so why do I care? 
you know? And that's an interesting question because there is something about what makes that a compelling story is like there is this one lost sheep and he's Mm -hmm. gone off there. And there's something that like really tugs at our heart that he's so far away and so alone that we have to go back and get him. Um, but uh, I was thinking to myself, and this is what I wanted to bounce off you guys to see if, because we got we kind of got to that point at the end of the last episode of like the value of human life um, being totally contingent on God finding value in human life, like that we don't inherently have value, uh, but because we are valued by the good itself, God, the purpose and origin and end of all existence, because he's decided we have value and come to save us we imitate that or we reflect that. And that is enshrined in our law, in this whole idea that everybody's created equal and has inalienable rights and all this stuff that until Christ never would have made any sense, like to Plato or Aristotle, or any of the great thinkers wouldn't have made any sense. And I thought of this analogy. Do you remember in the 90s when baseball cards were super valuable and things oh, were yeah. like, I collected basketball cards when I was a kid because <clears throat> of the bulls and everything. And me and my neighbor, we'd sit in the in his front yard with our big boxes of cards and, like, look at them and look them up in this magazine called Beckett. Did oh, you yeah. Ever, do you ever do that? Oh, oh for sure. yeah. Mm-hmm. And you'd check, you know, oh, God, this is a rookie card. This is a, you know, every pack of cards that you would get would have, like, two or three good players, and the rest were called common cards. And mm-hmm. you could, even in the Beckett, it would have, like, this brand, this year, common card worth five cents or whatever but then if you had you know like a grant hill rookie card from a good brand it could be worth 15 or 20 dollars or something like that and we it was like this game because not only were we fans of the sport but then also now you have these collectible things it just fit right into the kid idolizing thing but the only reason those had any value and why like what was it the honus wagner card was super valuable i think and some nuns had it really isn't that do you remember this story? Well, the the Honus Wagner is uh, that's from like the early 1900s. That's probably the most valuable card ever. I don't know the story of nuns having it. Yeah, I think there was some there was some convent that had a Honus Wagner. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, in the basketball world, it was uh, gosh, now I'm forgetting his name. But it was like if you go back to the 1960s or whatever, mm-hmm. there's some uh, some guy and his card was worth like sixteen hundred dollars, and we were just like man what if we had that card we'd have so much money (laughs) and we even thought of like man if you had like 20 of those cards they'd be you'd have so much money look at how much money you'd have and um little did we know that the only reason that card has value is because a it's rare so if there were 20 of them they wouldn't all be worth that much money and b there's somebody who wants it and is willing to pay that much money right because collectibles are told like this is the antique roadshow thing like the collectibles antiques things that have value simply because um they have sentimental or rarity value um only work if there's people who actually want to buy them otherwise they're worthless it's just a piece of paper with a picture on it mm-hmm. and after the 90s i can't remember exactly when this happened but now i guess baseball cards are worth nothing mm-hmm. like just generally they're like pogs now like no one cares or beanie babies just no one cares. And so if you were trying, if you were waiting for when this would, you know, if you thought just because it's old, every year it'll get more value, 
you're wrong because it's all about the market. And if people stop wanting them, like the people who used to collect baseball cards die and the people who come of age and have money no longer care about baseball cards, then great, you have a thing under your bed that's worthless. Mm-hmm. But my point, the point of this analogy is we human beings, um, it's in some ways like this, you know, and this may be crass to use a capitalist analogy like this, but we have value because the person whose opinion is most important and has the most power to uh, bestow value has shown not only in his words, but in his actions that we are infinitely valuable in the literal sense, like he gave himself up to win us back. Mm -hmm. And so the question of like, is it worth any sort of utilitarian argument about human life, like in the abstract, doesn't make any sense. It's always, you know, every human being is a uniqueness. Mm -hmm. And so you can say, yes, of course, like you don't, you don't weigh Matt Damon on Mars's value against a starving child in India. Because it yeah. doesn't make any sense. They're not, they're not equal. Um, they're yeah, they're equal in as much as they're both human beings, but they're not the same. You know, each is unique. I, I'm not doing a good job of describing that. But my reflection, this came to a point while I was offering mass uh, last week at some point, and I had gotten into a vortex about the political situation, and mm-hmm. it was breaking my faith in humanity to some extent, um, that there was a person who was gaining the support of many of my countrymen, uh, who I think is kind of a wicked person. And I thought to myself, as I was offering the synaxis at the consecration, it just occurred to me, like, this is Jesus pouring himself out for all of us. Like, I guess my faith, <clears throat> my faith is not so much tested in like God, but in other people sometimes Mm -hmm. and like saint james says how can you love the god you can't see if you can't love uh the person that you can you know like with politics it's so easy to just say like 50 percent of people what the heck does that mean right 50 percent of people you know every one of the people is a unique person with a unique situation and that's why it's easy in some ways it's easier for me to love a person even that's like difficult to love is if they're in front of me telling me their story, uh, even if they're like completely blinded by pride or, or whatever else or hate or anger, resentment, I find it easier to love them than if I just like, if you watch a 24 hour news thing and then you you hear 50% of people, some abstract non-existent um, thing think this and you're just like, what idiots. Oh yeah. Well, I have, I have some. Does that make any sense? What I just said. I think so. Okay. I have some some <laughs> thoughts. Uh, I mean, one that's like the old Mark Twain line of "There are lies, damn lies, and then there are statistics." You know, <laughs> and it's like it's even uh, Chesterton talks about that in his biography of Saint Francis. And he says that, you know, um, it's typical of every politician across the, across the spectrum. And honestly, it's typical of like general humanity usually is that you they love humanity. But saints, where they kind of turn that on its head is that saints love humans. Saints love people. 
And I think that's, you know, there's kind of a subtle difference there. Who said that? Uh, uh, that's Chesterton, I think, in the biography of Francis. It mm. could be elsewhere anyway. Um, that's where I heard it first of like just the difference between loving humanity, loving um, abstractions, and then, but it's saints that uh, love love people individually. They love people. But it's interesting when you were talking <clears throat> about the, yeah, just kind of the weighing the value of a human life. Um, I don't know if you remember this, Metz, but when we were in Rugen's class, and I think it was contemporary philosophy, and he was talking, we read uh, The Human Condition by Hannah Arendt. Yep. And I think it's her that makes a distinction between worth and value. And value has to be compared to something else. So exactly what you were talking about, Connor, of like value is only based on um, what someone else will, will pay for it at the end of the day. But worth is something that like can be intrinsic to each individual thing and then I think applied, you know, to each individual person. Um, and this could be a stretch. I don't want to ramble too much, but when you were talking, like going through that whole thing, I just thought about um, Bishop Barron's whole thing from his Doctrine of God class that, and just how important I think that is in the spiritual life and our understanding of the faith is that God's nature is non-competitive with ours. Mm. So because, and I, I, that's something, you know, I, I had never, uh, even thought about that until he said it. And that just made so many things in our Catholic faith just have a sense of fit for me is that I think oftentimes we get caught up in, and it, again, not bad intention, but it's talking a little bit in cliches or, you know, just kind of a basic way to talk about the faith. Um, to teach it to people that, you know, like when we don't have the capacity to maybe uh, learn it at a different level. But what happens in that is oftentimes we'll, we won't make a distinction between God's nature and our nature. And so, yeah, like relationships amongst human beings without a Christian worldview, without an understanding of the incarnation and, you know, the, the passion, death and resurrection of Jesus— um, frankly, worth is a very hard thing to bring into that discussion. Um, but you can do it with value if you understand value as being compared to something else. And, but to say, you know, one human being has, has worth is a very hard thing to do without the, the incarnation. Um, but if we do that on God's terms, because like you said, we're loved first and we have worth through through that, then you can have those discussions of, yeah, there's there's a guy on Mars and it's going to cost billions of dollars and risk lives um, and the, the whole deal. But it's worth it because of the worth of one human life. But if you're having that discussion in terms of value – then it honestly, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, and so that's why, I mean, I mean, this has very real implications. Oh, yeah. Look at, look at, for instance, yeah. Um, the way, like when space 
to continue the space line of thought when the space race was going on between uh, a culture basically infused with Christian ideals and values and another country which was completely collectivist, utilitarian, and atheistic. And they sent basically athletes into space, people who could endure physically, um, you know, extraordinary amounts of stress, like at zero gravity and um, whatever, rockets having tons of Gs, getting you up into orbit. And it didn't seem that important to the communists that they come home. They just wanted to get them up there, you know, and see what happened. Whereas uh, the Americans sent engineers who also, you know, were trained physically and everything and had to go through all this rigorous training. But they were trained to, like, problem solve up there because we wanted them back. Um, and I don't want to talk about it. Like, I don't know the history of that very well, but that's my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, that and, and you see this in... Uh, certain cultures that have been kind of deformed where life is so cheap you know Um, I was talking to Abbot Vincent and he's got this place you know the Benedictines have that uh, school and abbey down in Guatemala Mm -hmm. and these countries kind of racked by gang violence and drug cartels and stuff like just people are disposable they get thrown away Um, and we sort of I, I don't know we we value life there's a lot of ways that we don't value life but we certainly value our own lives a lot mm-hmm. um but we're much less likely like in terms of like think of the wars that we get involved in in the middle east where oh my gosh you know 200 americans died this month or something we're like oh my god and then how many people died of the civil war in syria in the last five years like i mean hundreds of thousands of people have died in that country and you see what i I don't know that i know enough about any of their political systems or religious beliefs to say what's the root cause of that but you certainly see a difference like it's not universal that human life is valued highly you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah do you have any thoughts Mets? I don't know. I mean, we're talking about a lot of different stuff here, and it's um, we we can switch topics if you want. I, no, I just no, no, to get that no, off my chest. no. It's just um, that was very moving. By the way, I was very touched to hear your apology huh. and Rob <laughs> accepting it. Yeah. Um, I don't. Know. Well, we, there. You know what? I th- just to close that loop. I I was thinking as you guys started, you were being sarcastic and making fun of one another or me, and I thought, you know, that's how we relate, but. I felt like I took liberties with that. And that was the thing about sarcasm and, and joking like that is that it's, it can be negative. And I've had friends where that's like the only way we relate. And after a while, it's just like not that fun to be around them. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we talk about, we talk about really serious things and are vulnerable with one another and yeah. are real friends, but that's the danger of that. And that was my, the heart of my apology. Yeah. Well, to be honest, so a couple of things, thoughts that I just had, um, because we are talking about like a a bunch of really big things at, um, you know, in some ways, practical historical levels, but like theoretical ideas that we're talking about. But if you just look at like our own constitution, which I know you've talked about in the past, like all men are created equally. That's baloney. If we're talking about a purely utilitarian, like practical perspective of the human person 
there's no one that can argue that. That's clearly not true. But yeah, I don't remember specifically that stuff from Hannah Arendt. Nice memory, dude. Um, <laughs> Thanks. And I, I actually liked that class too. So oh, that was one of my favorite philosophy classes. Yeah, very, very good. But it did ring some bells of like when you're talking about it. Um, I guess dusting off the old contemporary philosophy uh, bookshelf in my brain. Um, worth is something intrinsic, and value is something that's comparative. And I think I remember him talking about the use of like one is the use of force of like sheer power and strength of like um, this imposition of of something on another. But then the other is, yeah, from from within. Yeah, just purely value from within, which I might even be getting those confused. Um, but just a really practical example of something that I ex- I experienced this this past weekend, um, which is this is where my head and my heart is stuck right now. And, um, I kind of, it's, it was an awesome weekend. So I'm just going to talk about my experience of that, how I saw this actually lived out. We did a, a big life teen retreat. So like our, our youth ministry, uh, all the folks who are getting ready for confirmation, we went up to uh, this big facility up in, uh, North Georgia in the mountains. And it's a place called Covecrest. And it was like the most insanely baller weekend I've ever been on. Uh, we had 50-something kids that were with our parish, and then there was like 150 other kids that came up for the weekend. And, oh, my goodness, dude. We had some of the most sarcastic, cynical, um, like just not happy to be there kids that were cruising up. My volume just went weird. Can y'all still hear me? I can still hear you. Okay. Yeah. Um, some folks that just did not, did not want to be there. And we're all taking the bus up there and we have like, oh my gosh, dude, our youth ministry, it's just, we don't have a full-time youth minister, which um, is obviously not ideal. But So we have a bunch of parents who just volunteer and we cruise on up into the mountains and, you know, like no cell phones in and of itself is this huge deal for the kids and and uh, this place is just beautiful. And they put on this amazing retreat there. This group, Life Teen, I don't know if y'all are familiar with them. But they have missionaries who live there. They live by a rule of life. They like pray the breviary together, do holy hours together, pray the mass every day. Um, and it was very, very, very powerful. But what happened was they had to call a priest from Denver. He's a part of a new order called the Servants of Christ Jesus. And he was one of the founders. He's like 30 years old, super young, super cool guy. And they flew him out for the weekend just for this retreat because they couldn't find a priest. And apparently this guy had been over in Rome not too long ago. Um, Sometime in January was what he was telling us. And was appointed as one of 200 priests, personally appointed by Pope Francis, to be a missionary of mercy, which... I know Pope Francis gave all priests the faculties to like absolve serious sins like abortion. Um, but he also, on top of that, has the ability to go to any place in the entire world and have faculties to hear confessions instead of like getting approval from the bishop, I think is, was my understanding of it. So this dude is here at our camp. And no joke, we have like 200 teens. A lot of them don't want to be there. And they're slowly like being sucked into this retreat, which I don't know if y'all remember going on those when you're younger, if, if you did them with your own parishes, but 
don't know, it's interesting. It's kind of like pulling teeth. Mm-hmm. And eventually, like, that teeth, will, that tooth will start to wiggle and they'll start to give in and, like, oh, this is going to be really fun. Okay, it's okay for me to have fun and act like I'm having fun in front of my friends. And so you slowly see this, like, this breaking in of the actual retreat and opens kids up to encounters with our Lord and things like that. But this priest, he gets there and uh, he starts hearing confessions at like nine or 10 in the morning. This is 100% true. Nine or 10 in the morning, somewhere around there, just after breakfast. And he hears confessions all day until 5 p.m. mass. These are, these are like big time high school confessions as well. These are like confessions he has to be on for. These are big moments in these kids' lives. We're all pitching this like, go to confession, go to confession. This is it. Like right before confirmation, uh, the Lord is calling you. And so he's just going and he's just sitting in there. He has like his own house and there's just a huge line of kids, Hmm. all high schoolers. So then we have mass at five. Um, Then we have adoration at like from nine to 10, which he comes in and like processes around with the monstrance and uh, interacts with the kids, like approaches them and allows them to touch his humoral veil and very, very powerful. And then it ends at 10 and he gets back in the confessional and hears confessions until two in the morning, <laughs> two in the morning, dude. And then he woke up and had mass at five thirty on Sunday morning and then flew back out to Denver. And that was his weekend. Oh and gosh. it was like, the most supernatural activity I've ever seen from a human being live and in color, like seeing him in his house the entire time and just having constant lines until two in the morning. The guy heard something like 12 hours, 13 hours of confessions for kids who I mean, apparently when he got out of the confessional, like he was repeating things he was saying and like totally delirious and, uh, I mean, I don't know. I've heard that it's difficult to hear confessions for like an hour. Mm-hmm. It and is. so to, to go 12, I mean, I don't know what that says about that guy, but, um, you know, we just talking about the value of the human person or, or the intrinsic worth and just coming back from that retreat and really experiencing like how much people were able to really give of themselves to love these kids so that they could have this encounter with our Lord and grow closer to him. Our youth ministers, they have families, dude. They took entire weekends off to be in the mountains with some random kids because they want them to meet Jesus. And this guy sat in a room for like 13 hours until two in the morning to forgive, to absolve sins of these, of these high schoolers. Um, and that, it, it would just struck me as like such a real example of people who actually see the worth and the value of the human person mm-hmm. live, live and in color right there. And, and of course, like you talk to any youth minister and I'm sure they'll say the same thing, but like the whole bus ride home. And now I'm wearing a friendship bracelet. I've never had a friendship bracelet before. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> True confessions. I, I have a friend. This is the first <laughs> friendship bracelet I've ever had. And like, just having these incredible interactions with these kids, it was so much fun, man. And just to see them being able to be themselves for a weekend. Um, but really to see like how many folks did have to make a gift of themselves um, in order for these kids to, yeah, 
have an encounter with our Lord and maybe not have an encounter. And that's okay too, but like have a good experience of the church in a very powerful way. Um, I, that's just that's just what's on my mind and what's on my heart right now. And it, yeah, um, man. Well, it's like, oh yes. Why is there something rather than nothing? I just had I lost my train of thought because I remembered something, but I'll edit this out. The, <laughs> the thought that I had was, uh, give me a second. Yeah, you can think of. Uh, people like even it's a point of conversion for all of us myself included all priests all lay people everyone that like in, in the example of the confession line you can think of it as five more minutes or 25 more minutes or you can think of it as one more person or three more people you know right. and that's a huge difference wow, because yeah. one is focused on yourself and your time and the other is focused on this person who although you've been sitting there for however long you've been sitting there they are still, this is their one confession they're making, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I've, I've experienced that myself. Like you, it's, it's a conversion moment you have to have to see the other person um, and value them enough to get, and that's when, that's when our faith or our belief or our creed is really tested. Like, do you actually believe this? Or do you just say this and then still act as if you're the only person that matters um, your desires are the only ones that you worry about, or are you actually, uh, with this, that like every single human soul is worth, um, you know, infinite value, the the blood of Christ, you know, his life, he would have died if it were just that person, he would have given his whole life to be in solidarity with them, to bring them into eternal life. And your life is not even a fraction as valuable as his. And all you're being asked to give is 20 minutes and you happen to be hungry and tired, you know? Um, and it's not a, a guilt thing. It's just like, this is, this is the reality of what we say we believe. Yeah. And uh, what I think that the political or the, you know, statistical tends to whitewash and make abstract to the point of you can just like easily write off 50% of the people in your country as idiots or stupid or wicked because they disagree with you. It, you know what I mean? Like th- that's how yeah. political discourse is right now because it doesn't, it doesn't ever confront an actual human being and ever, you don't have to go like listen to an argument and have a conversation with a person. Yeah. You just listen to a soundbite and you see a picture and you make a judgment. Yeah. They're literally, they're literally a number popping up on the screen of your cell phone. Mm-hmm. That's what like half of the country has immediately become. Yeah. But so I came back and I was talking to my newly ordained priest about this. And one of the big frustrations is like, man, you just, you have these people, these kids that you want to uh, meet the Lord and you want to have, you want to have them have this powerful experience with his love and his mercy and all these wonderful things. But I think exactly this, like what, what you do when you put people in a box or break them down to merely a number or a statistic I know we've talked about this, but you, you dehumanize them in a lot of ways. You depersonalize the thing, but you also demystify them. Like the, the human person has an incredible mystery to them. Why, you know, so what you do is when you try to manufacture all of these things together instead of, I mean, I think a better word would be cultivate is like even with our kids, we could try and set up all 
all of the exterior resources, all of the retreats, all of the talks, all of the most spectacular things to manufacture this encounter with our Lord, which in a lot of ways, that's like what a retreat is. You, you set up all these situations that you hope the person, you hope this kid meets Jesus. Like, oh man, I want that so bad. Yeah, I felt the longing of a dad of like, dude, please, I want you to choose this thing. Mm -hmm. But what I had to do was one, respect their freedom and respect that love is this uh, act of mutual reciprocity between these two people, these two people. And two, I also had to live in the mystery of the uniqueness of each of those kids. And also, even better than that, I had to trust in the mystery of God that he's going to cultivate a relationship with this person. And even now, although the kid isn't you're jumping for joy with our Lord, maybe this moment that I'm like disappointed in, God is super, super happy with because this is exactly where he wants him. So instead of manufacturing situations and trying to, in a way, like manipulate kids, not manipulate, that's not right. But yeah, I think... You're like trying to make, stack the deck so that one thing happens instead of yeah. another. Yeah. Even in and of that, the dynamism and the mystery of God working in creation um, is still 100% present. Even within all of these, these scenarios that we've tried to create to have that encounter, God's stand, hand is still at work. And it was an invitation for me of like just deeper trust in that and also deeper respect for both the freedom and the absolute mystery of the human person and how God works in each of each of our lives, which is way cooler than anything that I could manufacture. You know, that's what it comes down to at the end of the day is the way that God's going to do it is going to be like 50 times cooler than, well, infinitely times cooler than how I could do it. And yeah, when you just put people in boxes and put them in polls and numbers and statistics like they do in politics, let's manufacture situations where I can manipulate people to do what I want. Mm -hmm. That's what you're doing right there. That's um, which, yeah, I de discredits the human person. It devalues them and it takes away, you know, I think a lot of the mysterious worth that Christianity and respecting the freedom of the other uh, has the freedom to like allow the dynamism of the human person to breathe. So it's tough in that way because then you don't get what you want all the time. You know, mm -hmm. I, I didn't get what I wanted entirely from the weekend, but the Lord did in a lot of mm -hmm. ways, you know, maybe not to the fullest, but, um, it's just a deeper trust in him. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of the solidarity argument for soteriology of how Christ saves us, um, is by putting us in solidarity, like we, the whole mystical body of Christ ecclesiology that we become part and parcel of this organic whole where we would be were we not there the body would be missing something you know so it takes us out the thing is like this whole argument's based on the fact that we are already in solidarity human beings are social animals and this is what you i think saw and we all see at things like teenager confirmation retreats is that you're right they they are looking to their friends to see if they have permission to like this you know because the last thing that a kid is going to want to do, like the reason you don't teach the 14 and 15 year olds hand motions to a song is because nobody wants, even if they think that that's fun, it's so uncool and lame 
<laughs> that they're not going to do it because they don't want their friends to think they think it's cool. You know, they are already in solidarity. And, and the, the fundamental solidarity that we're all born into is Adam, which is fallen humanity. We, the, the reason we're infected with sin is not because it's been like passed on to us through like a virus or an addiction, like biologically, is that we're, we're born into the family of the people who fell away from God, who decided to go their own way, who would rather enjoy creation than the creator. And we need to be put into solidarity. Like we're, we can't just be hanging off on our own floating in space like Sandra Bullock. We're not, we won't do that. We'll attach ourselves to some body, whether it's a, you know, behemoth Godzilla monster that's going to take us to destruction or if it's the glorified mystical body of Christ. And this is St. Ignatius's two standards. Like, which, which will you choose? Will you choose Satan's army, which is against God and refuses to serve? Or will you choose uh, the Messiah's army, who is meek and humble of heart and has come to not be served, but to serve? And that all of life is about making that choice. So that in the end, that is your choice. I choose to be in solidarity with him as he's chosen to be in solidarity with me. When I pour the water into the wine at mass, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who's humbled himself to share in our humanity. That's the way Catholics think we get saved. Why it doesn't make any sense to go up to somebody in an airport and ask them, are you saved? Because we, I'm saved in as much as I've chosen to unite myself to the body of my Savior. And that I can choose to alienate myself from that body. I can choose my, to hack myself off and graft myself onto the body that I was originally on. But that's why, like, I think that people make their decisions about their political candidate as soon as they hear him talk or her talk and see their face or see them, like, with a chainsaw or at, like, some university that they esteem highly because they're like, yeah, that person, I, that's he's like me or she's like me or I want to be like that or that's an ideal I hold. And they immediately glom themselves onto this personality rather than ideas you know, nobody's making their choice on their candidate based on ideas anymore. It's all like, do I like this person? Or does he speak for me? You know, um, am I in solidarity with him? And the reason we are always ambivalent about politics or any of the kingdoms of the earth is because our ultimate solidarity, our ultimate allegiance is to the king of kings. He's the same yesterday, today, and always. And no matter who's elected president, if you think he'll save the world or you think he'll destroy the world, you're wrong because God is still God. And that's who we're in solidarity with. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. And down.